on a mission. It's a mission to turn our world upside down. That happens when people hear the good news of Jesus. So get ready for God to turn you upside down. In ancient Greece, a certain priestess served in the temple of Apollo, the Greek god named Apollo. His main temple was located in the city of Delphi. And so this priestess serving in Apollo's temple became known as the Oracle of Delphi. According to tradition, three sayings were carved on a pillar outside her temple. And one of those sayings was this, Know yourself. That is, know, understand who you are. Though the myths about this oracle are very strange and obviously made up, this short phrase is not at all strange, nor is it fanciful. In fact, I would say it's good advice, even great advice, that we should know ourselves. Self-knowledge is essential for living a meaningful life. Well, pastor and theologian John Calvin begins his most famous writing with that phrase, Know Yourself. In the last episode, we were introduced to John Calvin. And in this episode, I want to share a little bit more from his writings, as especially he listed some of the main things we have to know from the Bible. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin writes these words. There is opening words on page one. Quote, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. First, the knowledge of God and secondly, the knowledge of ourselves. But which one precedes and brings forth the other is not easy to discern, for no one can look upon himself without immediately turning his thoughts to God, in whom we live and move. In those last words, Calvin is quoting from the Apostle Paul, from Acts chapter 16. There we read that Paul was visiting Athens, Greece. He was invited by the Greek philosophers to explain some of the main points about Jesus. And when they were all assembled together, Paul began to tell them about this God. He, he says, for example, that this God is invisible. Therefore, he cannot be represented by an idol nor by anything physical. And he's the one, Paul says, who created everything, including the first human beings. And God created us as humans so that we would seek him and find him. To emphasize this point, Paul quotes from one of their own Greek philosophers. That philosopher makes this point, that only in God we live and we move and we have our being. Think of that. In the true God, we, are, we as humans not only have our life, our physical life, but in this God, in our knowledge of him, we actually find our, our being. We, we discover our essence. In that same speech recorded in Acts 16, Paul quotes from another Greek thinker who said this, quote, We are his offspring. We as human beings, we are God's own offspring, his children. So Calvin draws this conclusion about Paul's words, that if we are indeed God's children, then it follows that we will find true knowledge of ourselves only as we know the true God. Let me repeat that that we will find true knowledge of ourselves only as we know the true God. And as we learn more about the true God, we're going to learn more about ourselves. Calvin uses this illustration. If you want to start knowing yourself, to know what humans are meant to be, then trace things back, sort of like you would trace the source of a flowing stream. 
To find the source of a stream, you naturally would walk upstream, going to the higher elevations, eventually arrive at the source of that stream. Maybe it's melting snow flowing from a high mountain range. Or maybe the source of that stream is a natural spring, one that bubbles up at the base of a mountain. So Calvin advises, be asking the right questions about yourself as a human. Try to seek the essence of what it means to be a human being and what the purpose of life is. Go upstream, so to speak. Go upstream to the source of human life. Eventually, you'll come to God. He is, of course, that divine stream, that original source from which we flow as human beings. Now, I know today many people do not believe there's a divine spring or an original source for humanity. Now, without believing in God as the source of humanity, people then have to come up with other theories, and and they actually have to make a huge leap of faith, for they end up believing that human life came eventually, or originally, from non-life. That human life originated from ordinary elements found in the soil and the water. In naturalistic theory, it's The theory is sort of this, that that atoms of carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and so on formed a, a molecule and then maybe lightning struck and voila, it came to life. It became that first one-celled creature. That non-living elements somehow became alive. I say it takes a, a great deal of faith to believe in that theory. It sort of reminds me of the fictional character of Frankenstein, or actually the monster produced by Dr. Frankenstein. In that classic novel by Mary Shelley, Dr. Frankenstein assembled various body parts together in his laboratory, and then he caused some power or electricity to surge into those body parts, and and that creature started to move. It became alive. To have life arise from non-life, Essentially, it's no different. It takes a great deal of faith to believe that theory, that human life originally came from non-life. Isn't it more logical to believe that life came from life? To believe that the first living thing came from something already living, already existing? Perhaps even a pre-existing divine life, an intelligent designer of some form. John Calvin would then say this, Now, Be thinking logically about that creator, that designer. You should be asking, for example, why would a divine designer make us? Uh, Why would a creator create us? What would have been his purpose for us? Well, in asking those questions, it's fairly logical to think that this designer would want some kind of connection with us, that he would want some kind of relationship with us. That we are, as humans, are actually his offspring, as that Greek philosopher said. So Calvin writes this on the second page of his famous work, quote, It is certain that we will never achieve a clear knowledge of ourselves unless we first look upon God's face. By that he means to look upon God. He's wording it in the negative. We'll never really know ourselves unless we know God. But wording it positively, it would be this. To know ourselves as humans, we need to know God. In fact, Calvin says you can also start with God. It really doesn't matter much. 
either start from us as lower beings and go up to the higher being, God, or start with God, the higher being, and move down to us as lower beings. Says Calvin, we can, quote, descend from contemplating God to examining ourselves. Now, something will happen when you start to reflect upon the cosmic creator. That if this God or cosmic force is truly God, then he will have to be good, even perfectly good. If God exists, then by logic, he will have to be good and the source of all good. At least that's what the most famous of all the Greek philosophers reasoned. Plato said this, When speaking of divine perfection, we signify that God is just and true and loving, the author of order, not disorder, the author of good, not evil. So if the Creator is good, He would probably expect His creatures, human beings, to be good also. But are you? Am I? Are human beings perfectly good? Well, in many ways we are good as humans and we can do some wonderfully good things. Yet, compared to the perfectly good Creator, it's obvious that we are imperfect. John Calvin uses this illustration. If you want to know whether cloth is perfectly white, well, it all depends on your standard of comparison. If, for example, you would hold an off-white, tannish-colored cloth to a black cloth as background, your cloth might seem to be white. It might appear that way. But if you hold that same tannish-colored cloth to a perfectly bleached white cloth, ah, then you will see it is not pure white. So it is for us as humans. When it comes to good and evil, what is righteous or unrighteous, we have to make sure we have the right standard of comparison. If your standard of comparison is the bleach-white absolute perfection of God himself, then clearly we should be able to see we are not perfectly good. We should understand that all of us as humans are imperfect. Now, the older theologians called this natural theology. And Calvin, well, he, he likes natural theology insofar as it goes. Basically, it involves reasoning from what we ordinary humans can see and observe and logically deduce from nature, from creation. Like Paul in Acts 16, Calvin would speak of how even Greek philosophers understood something truly and rightly about the true God. And they understood something correctly about human virtue and morality. But that natural theology, or human philosophy, can only take us so far. For more than that, says Calvin, we need much better knowledge. And wonderfully, the Creator God has given us better knowledge. He's given us more details. Where is that? Well, it's in His Word, the Bible. In the Bible, we learn more details about God and we learn more details about human nature as it exists today. Why do we need the Bible? Why do we need the Bible for proper self-knowledge to truly know ourselves? Well, for two reasons, basically. For one thing, we're, we're finite. We have a limited amount of knowledge. We're humans. And we have a limited amount of time. What, 70, 80, 90 years altogether? We're finite. And secondly, we are imperfect. 
Our human imperfection, our moral imperfection, means that we will never be able to truly know ourselves. We'll never be able to truly and completely understand ourselves, nor to understand God. In this regard, Calvin provides a helpful illustration. It comes a bit later in his book. You know, it's interesting how often Calvin illustrates a truth. It, it shows you that he was a good uh, teacher, a good preacher, by making use of illustrations. He says it's sort of like we as humans suffer from an eyesight problem. You know, as we get older, especially, most of us have trouble seeing things clearly, especially up close. We'll make an appointment then with the eye doctor, and he prescribes eyeglasses. And with those new eyeglasses, we're then able to see properly. So says Calvin, the Bible, God's word, is to us like eyeglasses, a pair of spectacles. We have sort of a natural knowledge, but the details are fuzzy, they are blurry. But as we read the Bible, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, things become much clearer to us. Here are Calvin's exact words, and with all of his words, I'm slightly editing them to help us understand. Quote, Just as old or blurry-eyed men and those with weak vision, if you would thrust before them a most beautiful volume, even if they recognize it to be some sort of writing, yet they can hardly construe two words. But with the aid of spectacles, eyeglasses, they will begin to read distinctly. So the scripture, the Bible, gathering up the otherwise confused knowledge of God in our natural minds, clearly shows us the true God. In and through the Bible, then, we're able to see and understand many more things rightly. Sort of reminds me of Psalm 119, verse 18, where the psalmist says, O God, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law, the law of God the Word of God. Open my eyes that I may see, that I may understand. Now, just a side point here. The Bible doesn't give us all the knowledge that we as human needs. The Bible, for example, does not give us the knowledge of all science or mathematics or world history or or the rules of grammar. No, that's not the purpose of the Bible. The Bible gives us sufficient knowledge about God, the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and about ourselves in relationship with this God. So we turn to the Bible, and we read in the very first chapter of the Bible these words in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, that in the beginning God created those first human beings in his own image and according to his own likeness. Wow, we as humans are created in the image, in the likeness of God himself. Obviously, not exactly like God. God is a spirit being. We are physical beings. God is infinite. We are finite. There's many differences between us and God. But we are nevertheless something of a reflection of God. We are something of a reflection of God. And that basic concept from the Bible, that we as humans are made in God's image, starts to give a whole new meaning to human existence. Oh, in this we have to distinguish between humans as they were originally created by God, in the very beginning, from what humans later did to themselves. Later, as Adam and Eve disobeyed God, we call that the fall. They, they fell from perfection, they fell into sin, into imperfection, with all of its, incorrupt, all of its corruption and imperfection. 
so many wrong thoughts and words and deeds. But in the beginning, we were created perfectly in the image of God. Now let me again quote from Calvin. Quote, The likeness of God, or the image of God, in which we were originally created, extends to the whole excellence by which human nature towers over all the other kinds of living creatures. Accordingly, the integrity in which the first man was endowed is expressed by this word, that is, the image of God. When the first man had full possession of right understanding, when he had his desires kept within the bounds of reason, all his senses were tempered in right order. When God's image is placed in humans, an antithesis is introduced, which raises humans above all other creatures, and, as it were, separates him from the common mass, that is, the common mass of other animals. Only human beings are created in the image of God according to his likeness. Well, let me bring all this down from the theological clouds. Let me bring it down to the earth and give some practical uh, ways in which this makes a practical difference in how we think of ourselves. When we believe, when we understand that we are created in God's very image, so much changes in how we start viewing ourselves. For one thing, it means that we as humans have incredible worth. Think of it. The Bible teaches that we as humans reflect God. No, we're not gods. We're human. But in so many ways, we reflect something of God, like a dull mirror dimly reflects the outline of an object. So we as humans dimly reflect God. So as God has worth, we have worth, since we're created in his image. And every human being has, is, has worth. And each human being, therefore, must be treated with dignity. Oh, we can apply this in so many different directions. This, this applies to, to the realm of psychology, how we think of ourselves, how we have, have a sense of, of some esteem, some idea of our worth before God, how we deal with guilt and shame, how we deal with thoughts and feelings. We can apply this psychologically. But also, think of, think of how we can apply this socially, that every human being, created in God's image, has worth and must be treated with dignity. Well, that's why so many things have changed in, in Western history especially. That's why, for example, believers in the 18th and 19th centuries worked so hard to outlaw child labor. Prior to the entrance of the gospel, the true biblical gospel, Children as young as seven, eight years old were, were forced to work 10, 11-hour days, hard at work. Believers came along and said, no, that's not tre treating children with the worth, the dignity that they have. Those years of childhood are not for economic exploitation. They're for education and for training and to being a child. And here are some of the social implications of the image of God in us as human beings. That's why, for example, Christian believers historically have worked hard to outlaw child labor. Child labor laws came into effect because in 18th and even 19th century Europe, children as young as six and seven and eight years old were forced to work 10 hours a day or longer. No, said the believers. Childhood years are for education and training, not for economic exploitation. 
the image of God, God's image in us as human beings. That's why, for example, among Christians, there was a push for shorter work days. Again, back in the 1800s and early 1900s, in many places people were working 12, 13, 14 hour days. But people have worth. They have dignity created in the image of God. Christians realized that workers needed time for their own necessities and for their own families, and gradually laws were enacted to limit work hours. And then think of how believers like William Wilberforce in England in the 1800s were pushing for the abolition of slavery to outlaw that evil practice. Why? Because as a pastor, as a preacher of the gospel, he knew that all human beings were created in God's image. Everyone is in God's likeness. Slavery was a terrible sin. People torn from their homelands, torn from their families, bought and sold like cattle. No, said Wilberforce and so many other believers. Slaves are also in the image of God and they must be set free and they must be treated with dignity. Later in the 1900s, in the 1960s and 70s, believers, Christians were at the forefront of seeking racial justice in the United States. From the Bible, we know that all people, all the races have come from the same set of human parents. We've all descended from Adam and Eve. And by the way, that means that while we have to be supportive of our home countries, we should never become nationalists. We should never raise up our nation as a kind of idol. It's never my country, right or wrong. No, under God, all human beings really are one family. We are all distant cousins of each other. We've all been created in God's image and after his likeness. In that regard, no believer can defend what those officers did to George Floyd and to so many others recently. Every believer must be seen to have human worth and dignity, no matter what the race or economic background. And that's not because of politics. No, this is because of what God says, how God has created us in his image and after his likeness. Oh, we could go on. I'll have to stop somewhere. Human beings have worth. You and I have worth. We have worth because God made us distinctly as his image bearers. You see, all this comes from knowing God. Knowing God generally from his creation and more than that, knowing God more specifically with the help of the spectacles, the eyeglasses of the Bible. Then and only then as we know God from the word, from the Bible, will we truly know ourselves what happened in us to destroy at least partly that image of God in us and how that image of God becomes restored in us through Jesus. Then especially we find meaning and purpose in our lives. How true those words written by John Calvin back in the 1500s that only as we know God, then we can start to know ourselves. Only as we know God, then we'll start to understand what our lives are really meant to be. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Randall. This podcast is produced by my brothers in Christ, Dennis and Moses. Won't you tell your friends about us? We're Mission Upside Down. Thank you.